right, let's kick this thing off. Welcome to the knowns and unknowns of myopia management and other cool stuff in optometry. And this is brought to you by the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control and GP Specialists. GP Specialists is 100% dedicated to OrthoK and has one of the largest portfolios of OrthoK lenses. We thank them for their support. And I'd also like to say thank you to Contamac for underwriting a portion of today's program. Optimum is one of the most popular lens materials in the market. All right, well, before we get started, I wanna add that the opinions and viewpoints expressed tonight do not necessarily reflect the AAOMC or its sponsors of this program. And if you're new to the knowns and unknowns, this is episode two of our ongoing six-part series. And we have two sections for tonight's episode. Our first section is a panel discussion, myopia management trends, academic versus private practice. And then after that, we'll be featuring a clinical corner, axial length, when and why to measure. All right, so I'm gonna get to our introductions for our main topic. Let me introduce our panelists. First off, representing our academic side of tonight's discussion, she teaches, conducts research and practices primarily in the areas of refractive error, cornea, anterior segment, and contact lenses at the University of Houston College of Optometry. Welcome to the program, Dr. Katherine Richdale. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right. And next, representing our clinical side of tonight's discussion, he's a fellow and board member of the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control, who specializes in myopia management out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Jonathan Schoner, welcome to the program. Thank you. Excited to be here tonight. All right. And I'm Matthew Herzberg, the Executive Director of the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control. I'll be your host and moderator for tonight's panel discussion. All right, so our first topic for this evening is environmental factors versus genetics, which plays a larger role when it comes to the increase of myopia. And then how do we communicate that information to patients? So over the years, we've all heard a case being made that a major contributing factor to the increase of myopia is environmental. Parents who previously didn't need glasses until they were in college are now looking at their own children who are just as bad or worse at a much younger age. And they've got to be thinking, is this inherited from me or is this because of something else? Uh, so Catherine, we're going to start with you. There's something else in this equation would be environmental or lifestyle factors. So just to bring everybody up to speed, what kind of factors are we talking about? And then how do you communicate these factors to your patients? Sure. So I would say the main two that we talk about in the clinic are outdoor time and near work. Uh, I think there's still a lot to be um, seen as far as environmental and lifestyle behaviors. There's a lot of research going on into sleep and light exposure and a number of other potential factors, nutrition, right? You name it, probably somebody's looking at it. Um, but, but there's, I think, enough um, weight of evidence behind outdoor time and near work that those are the two that we talk about. And, you know, we might get into this a little bit more, but I think the main things are we try not to shame parents and not to make them feel bad about things, but to educate them on things that they could do to either slow the onset if they're, they've got children who aren't yet myopic or to um, potentially slow the progression in, in children who are. Gotcha. And I love what you said. We try not to you know, shame the patients or the parents. Jonathan, same thing. What do you tell your patients? Well, I, I find it's, it's often a Pandora's box because as Catherine mentioned, we, we 
have so many unknowns and so many variables, uh, it often leads to a lot of presumptions, uh, either by the parents or by the the provider. And and oftentimes, I find that the parents tend to guide the conversation uh, because. I've found that a lot of parents actually come in with preconceived notions or convictions of their own of what's causing their child's nearsightedness of developing. Um, And that in itself will just lead to, you know, maybe a a deluge of all of the unknowns and, and maybe making them step back and realize, okay, maybe it's not as clear cut as Tommy likes to play video games all of the time. Uh, So I, I, I tend to try and, and just open the, the parents, um, mindset into understanding that there's so much that we don't know about it yet, but also so many factors that we are considering. Uh, and, uh, and it leads to a very sometimes elongated discussion. Gotcha. And, and Catherine, what kind of, you know, is there research to back up these, you know, what we're telling their patients about these factors and, um, you know, is that a useful tool in communicating this to the patients? Sure. I mean, there's actual um, randomized trials in Asia with light exposure and putting kids in more, um, having more light during classroom time. So I think that's um, a given. The near work and um, some of the changes that occur um, that may occur or the the efficacy that that may occur once a child has become myopic, there's less so. But um, my personal belief is one, physiologically, it's hard for me to, to think about how those two might not be related at all, right? If it, if it causes it, why wouldn't it also have an effect on its progression? Um, and two, there's nothing bad about telling a child to, you know, take a break um, from video games or even schoolwork and just go outside and play for a little while, right? It'll always be waiting for you later on. So I think... Um, in general, just speaking about those that they're not going to hurt um, either the eyes or the child as a whole, and, and they may have some benefit is usually where I, I kind of speak to, to that. Gotcha. Jonathan, do you agree with that? I would. I mean, I think even if you're offering something with extrapolated data or uh, from what you can gather, um, uh, partial efficacy. Uh, as, as Catherine said, I mean, there's, there's not much of a downside. Uh, it, the only downside is choosing what factors to focus on, in my opinion, is, you know, sometimes you can steer the conversation as a provider uh, into focusing on uh, potentially outdoor time. And uh, maybe that's the right thing to do. And maybe, maybe we should be focusing more on the academic tendencies. Uh, so I, to me, I think I find that part tricky. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's all part of the discussion. And that's why it can become a very big one. Gotcha. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, f- I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like a, what I've heard from a lot of clinicians is they're saying is like, I don't, don't disagree with the data, but you know, I need to give parents uh, of these patients something concrete, like a concrete recommendation. And when it comes down to these factors, like uh, time of day and uh, spectrum and how often they should go outside, I mean, I think a lot of clinicians are just looking for something concrete that they can give their patients. Like you should be going outside X number of hours a day, or you should be doing certain kinds of activities, or um, if you're going to read a book, read it by the window. Uh, so, I mean, Catherine, what do you think of yeah. that argument? Yeah. I mean, and I, I talk about this with my students a lot too. I try not to be too prescriptive. It, 
it's almost easier, I think, especially for the students when they can grasp onto one, you know, sentence from a paper or something they heard at a CE talk and be, you know, go outside for two hours, you know, make sure you take the 2020 rule breaks, all those things. And I don't think we have enough evidence behind it to really be that prescriptive. I think in general, outdoor time is good. Taking breaks from intense near work uh, is good. Um, but beyond that, I don't personally feel comfortable being too prescriptive with it. Yeah. And I'd like to add a comment to that. I mean, I think when when you're discussing these broader topics and, and like Catherine said, not being as prescriptive in it, um, sometimes you'll get some pushback from the parents because they do want something finite and concrete mm -hmm. that they can do. So that that's usually part of the challenge and kind of pulling back the reins. And it's, it's hard because you do want to convey that you care about their child's vision and their, their eye health later in life. You, you have, you have a lot of concerns for their child, but when you, when you give more general explanations or, uh, you know, suggestions of what to do, uh, you have to make sure you're not coming off as brushing it off or not caring as much. And you have to, you have to let them understand that it's, it's simply because there's unknowns. And we've had the whole spectrum of parents, right? We've had some that don't care and their kids playing on, you know, their iPhone the whole time they're in, in our exam room. And we've had some, one mother who wanted to take her child out of school because they felt like it was just too much, you know, computer time and near work. And we had to talk about that's probably not what's best for your child. There's really not enough evidence to say that that is going to be the you know, deciding factor of, of how your child's myopia progresses. So. Gotcha. And are we going to see some definitive information that we can pass along to patients? Because I think, I don't know, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the conversations I've had is sometimes parents just get overloaded with information from the get-go. So, I mean, when is a good time to start having that conversation? Is it right away? Is it after you've described what you're doing? Uh, Catherine, what do you think? Well, and that's the thing that as a as a profession, um, we really need to get a get a better job of getting that message out to the general community because probably where it's most effective, at least based on our current evidence, is before the child becomes nearsighted. Then we can um, delay the onset, and then the ultimate level of myopia that child gets is lower. So, so that's why we don't personally in the in the clinic spend too much time talking about it as well. It's not. I'm not going to say the horse is off the gate and there's nothing to be done, but the evidence as it is, as it stands now suggests that earlier is better. So getting that into the hands of the pediatrician and the school nurse and the teachers and the parents um, who are already myopic and are, you know, destined to have myopic children. I think that's where we need to focus those efforts. Right. Jonathan, would you agree with that? And is there anything that you've experienced in your practice that has uh, aided you in getting that information out there? Is it, has it been working with a pediatrician or, or, you know, what do you think? I mean, I agree. I think the earlier you start the conversation, the better. Um, being in a private practice uh, and seeing a lot of pediatrics uh, year after year, it's really helpful because I'm, I'm often seeing these kids before they become nearsighted. So I can start the discussion uh, because oftentimes the, the kids that are coming in to see you, uh, their parents typically are, are myopic in some degree. Um, and so they, they typically have that on the forefront of their mind. Hey, I want to catch this early if possible. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the earlier, the better. It's oftentimes best to kind of lay a foundation, as Catherine said, before the child even becomes myopic, um, if you have the opportunity. 
but but reach out programs i mean local local presentations to school nursing boards uh that the the ones that provide the school screenings and uh physicians assistants and pediatricians have been important uh, as as a um as a knowledge source you know it's 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 trying to open their eyes up to what we're trying to wrap our heads around every day and sometimes it's a small piece but it's every bit helps gotcha and, and Jonathan, oftentimes a clinician will see multiple members of the same family, eventually multiple generations. Uh, and there's also a potential for a diverse patient base. Uh, from your point of view, is genetics really that big of a player in this equation? And, uh, and then again, how should we be communicating that to patients? Yeah, it's always exciting seeing a, a family, you know, because you can, you can make your own clinical comparisons between siblings and parents. Um, the, the research is pretty definitive that there is a genetic component to myopia development. Uh, we know that, you know, uh, according to research, if one child or if one parent is myopic, uh, the child has a higher likelihood of becoming nearsighted. I believe it's about one and a half times. Uh, and if both parents are nearsighted, it's about three times more likely that the child will become nearsighted. Uh, so, so we know that genetics is a component and, and having that discussion with them, uh, and, and it does generate concern amongst the entire family at that point, uh, for, for having screenings and, and comprehensive yearly checks. I think that's, that's always been a, um, a really good discussion point of just opening the door of, Hey, we, we look at myopia differently. Now we, we watch it, uh, from a populational standpoint, you know, we're seeing this trend in the population. So let me, let me tell you what we know about it and why we should watch, you know, the entire family basically. So yeah, it's, it, it's very valuable. Catherine, do you agree with Jonathan? I and mean, what is the academic perspective on genetics? Yep. Uh, genetics is associated with myopia. It is, um, I think the challenge in, in research and academia now is that, right, they've, they've identified, you know, 150, 160 more different genetic variations that are associated with kind of common or garden variety myopia. Um, and together, they're not really getting us any closer to being able to say who's going to become a myope, what degree of myopia they're going to have, those kind of things. So the really the single best uh, factor we have is their refractive error. And so I think that's really empowering to optometry to be able to say, we don't need to send off any kids for genetic testing. Yeah, we can ask if mom and dad are nearsighted. Likely the child is going to become nearsighted. But we also have a lot of kids now whose parents aren't nearsighted and are surprised by it because of these environmental factors that we just talked about. So the earlier we can start you know, evaluating refractive error in these kids, the better we're going to be able to then implement uh, you know, an environmental change. Maybe in the future, we might even be implementing some sort of treatment prior to myopia. But at least at, at that point, with based on refractive error, we know maybe who we need to see more often because um, they're most likely going to become a myope. Gotcha. So in your opinion, would you say is uh, what, you know, for the debate, which plays a larger role, <laughs> environment or genetics? Mm, yes. Uh, <laughs> both. You can't, I don't know how much we can separate them. I guess if I had to pick, I would say genetics. Um, it's okay. just, why you, so? Yeah. Well, you can't, I, it's very rare to have right two myopic parents and get the kid away from becoming a myope themselves. Um, it's the kind of in between that maybe gets a little bit uh, more noisy. Um, but yeah, obviously the 
I don't know, I could argue both sides of it. The fact that we <laughs> were seeing such an increase larger than we would see based on genetics alone argues that environment really does have a have an important fact. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, does that match up with what you're seeing in uh, in your clinic? It does. Uh, my my personal opinion, and, and I, I think I could spin it either way, but my personal opinion is that environment is a is a really, really large piece of it. Um, the, the last point that Catherine made about, you know, the, the populational shift, I mean, the estimation, we've all seen it by, by 2050, it's estimated that maybe half of the entire world is going to be uh, nearsighted, the entire world, not just the country. So, uh, when we look at that, you know, we look at literally seeing changes um, from one generation to the next or within the same lifetime of the myopia development. That is so compelling to me uh, to think that environment must be such a huge factor. But, uh, you know, when discussing environmental versus genetics, this is a slight tangent, but but I've seen uh, a lot of uh, a lot of progressive myopes where it tends to be um, genetically, we'll say pre predetermined uh, through the family. Um, I find those ones to be especially hard to slow down the progression. So as Catherine pointed out, that that is uh, that's very hard to do when it's genetic. So potentially less in my in my clinical experience, less influenceable, less impactful. Um, I feel I feel towards those uh, strong genetic myopes uh, versus the child that uh, that doesn't have a history of nearsightedness in the family. Uh, maybe they're the first, but they're showing strong progression of myopia. Sometimes I feel clinically I could be a little more um, uh, effective uh, in treating those patients. Just a little side tangent, but it, that doesn't necessarily lend uh, credence to one being a bigger part of it. It's just. They're, they're different, different beasts, different parts yeah. of the, the whole. For sure. I'd like to kind of go down a little bit of another tangent, if you guys don't mind. It's kind of the elephant in the room as far as I'm concerned. It's, you know, because of the pandemic and more specifically the lockdown, you know, if kids are going to be in front of screens as they have been for eight hours plus a day, you know, are we going to see a huge spike in myopia? Uh, you know, Catherine, what do you think? Is there any research or data to come out or is it still too early to tell? Yeah, there are some studies out of Asia coming out, and I'm sure we'll see more um, seeing an increase relative to years past when they're doing, you know, kind of general screenings across a population. So I think that's not surprising. Um, you know, we have seen an up uptick in our clinic and kind of to Jonathan's point of, of children who don't have myopic parents um, as well. So not surprising, um, kind of an another unfortunate outcome of, of the pandemic. Jonathan, are you seeing something similar in, in your clinic? I, I am, uh, coincidentally, right? Or not. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a definite noticeable trend. I mean, I, I've made it a point to look back at a lot of my clinical cases where I've had the opportunity to see family members year after year. Uh, and, and of course, not everyone pursues a myopia management or a myopia control program. So I have a large number of patients both in myopia control programs and, and a large number that are not. And just based on my anecdotal you know, clinical observations, I, I have seen what previously was a stable myope uh, without a history of high progression, uh, you know, worse than significantly over the last year and a half, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, six months only uh, into, the, into the pandemic when, when screens really took control of our lives. So I've, I've definitely seen it. I have no doubt about it. But, uh, 
it's, it's really interesting to have these discussions with parents because as Catherine mentioned, I mean, you start talking about it and then the parents start wondering, well, should I pull my kid out of school? Yeah. You know, should, should they do online? I mean, we're having to deal with these questions as practitioners of, you know, parents say, should I put my kid in online school or should, should I put them in school? And that's a huge question for us to answer that goes way beyond optometry. So the trend is there. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see when all of the, the final data comes out of it, whenever we get out of the screen use time. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, you know, geez, by 2050, I mean, there's going to be more, there's going to be plenty of myopia kids to go around. It's going to, I mean, I feel like this is an inflection point for the industry, right? This is the moment. I mean, you have parents coming in and saying like, my kid's in front of the screen all day. Like that can't be good for their eyes. Like this is our moment, right? Um, so if, if, uh, if there's anything else to add on that, Catherine, and otherwise we'll go to the next topic. No, hopefully maybe by 2050, we'll have learned how to shrink eyeballs and reverse it all. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say too, I I can't imagine honestly a bigger moment for, for myopia to get attention. I, I think this is, this is probably the biggest thing I could, I mean, if you, if you think about it, what, what worse could you do to a child uh, rather than putting them in front of a screen uh, and having them stare at it for six to eight hours a day. Right. I mean, it's, it's very hard to imagine anything worse for myopia, at least. Right. Very well said. Okay. So we're going to move on to our next topic, which is small treatment zones. Um, and I feel like the debate out there is that when it comes to ortho K, a smaller treatment zone is uh, better. Jonathan, let's start with you this time. For the uninitiated, why is the size of the treatment zone so important? And do you agree with your fellow clinicians who might say, yes, a smaller treatment zone is better? So uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the clinicians are trying to be on the cutting edge of what we interpret from the research, because the reality is research is what dictates what we do today and tomorrow um, in the clinic. And so uh, it's it's understood if you subscribe to the peripheral defocus theory, okay, and creating a peripheral area of defocus in the mid-peripheral retina of, of myopic defocus, uh, that's, how, that's how we're attempting to slow down myopia progression. So uh, the idea, of course, being with a smaller treatment zone, you're going to create that mid-peripheral steepening um, in a closer concentric circle sometimes within the pupil fully and sometimes on the, on the margins of the pupil. And so uh, in doing that, you, you are allowing more of the mid peripheral defocus to, to fly or to land on the, um, on the proper locations in the back of the eye. So it's, it's essentially more stimulation with a smaller treatment zone. So uh, I, I personally am trying to do that. I, you know, the, the randomized clinical trials on that particular uh, decision uh, is, I think a lot of uh, practitioners find it hard sometimes to say, okay, this is clearly definitive that a smaller treatment zone will slow down the the myopia progression more effectively because those randomized clinical trials, I think are, are, few on that specific topic, one. And two, I think it's, it's hard because the ones that do exist um, maybe didn't isolate that variable specifically um, and, and, and do a good job of controlling for other variables uh, that may be influencing that specific case. So, you know, in, in trying to be on the, on the cutting edge, that's, that's what I try to do. Uh, I hope in 10 years, I'm not looking back and thinking I made the wrong decision. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. 
I would echo, yep, I would echo that. And I was just going to add to Jonathan's like, right, if we believe the prevailing hypothesis of myopic to focus, great. Even if we don't, if we think it's contrast or astigmatism or something else that we're changing the periphery, right? Making that treatment zone smaller and pushing the uncorrected area or the area of the cornea that's within the um, alignment or reverse curves, um, right? Modifying that we still should be putting more whatever it is across the retina to get a little bit better efficacy. And I think there's some other kind of tangible clinical benefits as far as how quickly we can get treatment, how we may be able to treat a a little bit of a higher myope, maybe a little bit faster. So personally, I agree with Jonathan, not not a huge amount of research in the area, but from what I've seen, um, both clinically and in the studies I've read, I think it doesn't hurt. Um, I'd rather err on the side of a smaller treatment zone on the cornea than a larger one. Yeah, gotcha. that, Go we're, ahead, all, Jonathan. we're all trying to make the best decisions for the patients, right? So we're, we're all being a bit assumptive in that. But again, it, it is based on what we can pull from the, the research. So it's, it's a bit assumptive, but uh, an educated assumption or an educated decision. Yeah, and I think a lot more research needs to be done to understand exactly how, and right, uh, Maria, who's going to speak later, has done a lot of good um, work in in this area as well, but how we exactly impart from our optic zone onto the cornea, how much treatment, how much that affects peripheral plus, if that's what we care about, how well we can, and accurately we can measure that, and then how much effectiveness or efficacy we have with that change all remains to be seen, but I can't think of a downside, especially since these kids aren't usually driving at night. Um, when we get into, you know, 16, 17 year olds, we might have a different story, but all of the eight year olds I've asked aren't driving yet. So that's good. (laughs) Right. Right. So, I mean, like I was going to say how, and why do you vary treatment zones, but I have a question from the chat. What treatment zone size do you recommend? Jonathan, go ahead. Um, Unless I'm going for uh, an unusually difficult fit or maybe a, a potentially a higher myope, um, I typically stick with a 5.4 millimeter optic zone uh, and treatment zone. Uh, you know, typically the treatment zones can be a little bit smaller than your actual optic zone size, but that's what I set it to be. Uh, but as, as Catherine kind of mentioned, I mean, I will vary it depending on what the patient needs are. If I need to modify my fit in order to achieve the right vision correction, I've gone down to as small as five millimeters. Um, and, and that typically is for uh, also echoing what she said about 16 years and younger. Uh, and then I have found that you know, my trend is to increase the treatment zone size more or less correlated with age and 16, 17 is kind of an inflection point of, uh, of responsibilities. So, yeah. And I don't custom make my lenses. It sounds like Jonathan does. So um, uh, I will say in general, the VST lenses that I've used impart a smaller optic zone, um, treatment zone on the cornea than CRT with their standard six millimeter. So I have switched with the CRT lenses to move to using a five millimeter um, within. For most of my patients, um, and maybe we can get into some nuances about, you know, refractive error and efficacy and things like that. But for most of my patients, I do feel like there is a, a benefit to the five millimeter on the, on the CRT and the standard for the VST has been um, working fine for us, I guess. And I'd like to add one more thing there. Uh, it's, 
I find it exciting and interesting at the same time that uh, Paragon has has more recently started offering the smaller uh, optic zone size on the CRT lenses. I think um, I think that does uh, lend some credence to the idea of a smaller optic zone. I mean, with a company like Paragon making a decision like that, um, you would imagine that they've they've put the time in to to understand uh, at least the collective research available right now, and that's a that's a that's a good decision on their part, but it also speaks volumes to what they anticipate as a larger company with a lot of resources and a lot of people uh, behind that decision. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, so from my point of view, it's like I I understand that this is like cutting edge, but you know, it makes me wonder like why is this debate so important, right? Because most new to ortho K docs aren't even going to be really worrying about this. They're going to be you know, starting with easy cases, working with a lab, and, you know, maybe it won't even be till they start designing their own lenses. So, um, you know, Catherine, why is this debate, you know, why is this uh, a trend? Sure. Why is this debate so important? Sure. Well, so I would first say by just fitting orthokeratology, you're doing good things for your patients, right? We're getting into nuances because this is a academic versus it's not even private practice, right? We're on the same side, but this is a debate of, you know, kind of maybe what we can do better, what's coming down the pipeline. Um, but I think historically it's been maybe a little muddy or a little bit, you know, kind of a, a contentious. I don't even know if it's that's the right word, but because when they were looking at, you know, are we changing peripheral to focus with a different optic zone, we didn't really get a great answer or the answer we expected. But again, I would come back to, is that the right thing to be measured? How accurate are we with these measurements? I've made these measurements before. Um, there's a lot of noise to them. There's a lot of potential um, error. So I don't, to me, that isn't the definitive. It doesn't work. I put a little bit more stock in the randomized studies that have showed kids over time having a little bit better. Again, not that the standard optic zone or a slightly larger optic zone didn't work. Not That's not true at all. It's that there was a slightly little better efficacy, at least you know in the first year, um, with a smaller optic zone than a standard. So more research to be needed, but I think that's where kind of the, the discussion lies now. Jonathan, would you agree with that? Or do you have any final thoughts on the topic? Um, I would just say I, I I do agree with that absolutely, but it's it's interesting because you know from the parents' perspective, uh, you're achieving myopia control if their refractive error doesn't change or the child is seeing 2020. That's what I found. I mean, if parents see that their child is seeing well, they say, oh, very good. You know, uh, their vision hasn't changed, so you must be you must be doing a good job of slowing their myopia progression, and and drawing that line for them. Um, is always tricky because, you know, as clinicians and as doctors, we understand more behind that, uh, that the axial elongation is a variable and is a factor that uh, isn't necessarily always reflected uh, in what you're seeing uh, on the on the refractive outcome. So, and I think a lot of new practitioners who are getting um, excited and getting involved uh, in orthokeratology, they focus on getting the patient to see 2020 in the beginning. Uh, and then the more evolved you become, you start getting into the nuances of the smaller treatment zones. And, and that's just a, a natural evolution. Uh, so that's yeah. just my two cents on it. Yeah. And I love what you say about axial length, because I think it really, it, it sometimes can almost give a false sense of security with orthokeratology. Parents don't know you're changing the base curve. So, right. You could say to, the, to them, if you wanted to, not that we would for, you know, 10 years that they're 
they're fine and they're seeing the same um, because sometimes a change in vision might be because the lens got, you know, um, decentered a little bit or something, right? So, yeah. So we mm -hmm. do talk to the parents about axial length and why it matters. Um, and right, another area we could get into with ortho K is, you know, what is the Jessen factor you use and how much overcorrection should we be giving? And so, you know, the refractive error component of orthokeratology can get pretty messy pretty quickly, um, which is why I think personally axial length is a really helpful piece of information. Well, that's a perfect transition because our next topic is axial length. We're going to talk about it briefly here, and then we're going to let uh, uh, Leah Johnson and Dr. Maria Liu go into more detail in our clinical corner after this. Um, so axial length is has been a hot topic recently, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's two camps on this argument, right? There's those who are saying, look, it's absolutely necessary. It's a must-have. And then there are those who are saying, look, it's not necessary, but it's nice to have. Uh, Catherine, real quick, why? what is axial length's role in myopia management? And which side are you on? Are you must have or nice to have? I'm still camp nice to have because I don't, again, we don't want to shame parents. I don't want to shame doctors. Doctors, if they don't have a biometer to measure axial length, should still do myopia management if they want to without a doubt. However, I personally find the information really helpful because oftentimes um, these things are decoupled too. We might see a, a shift in refraction and not axial length or vice versa. We know that axial length is related to visual impairment um, risks. It, it, we know that the refractive error measure is really noisy. The axial length is more precise. There's just, there's a lot of reasons why to me it's beneficial. And if you really want to do myopia management, you're going to invest in a topographer, you're going to invest in a biometer. Um, but to get started or to do it um, at least, you know, some sort of myopia management without, without axial length is, is definitely fine. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's, you know, that's one of the the arguments, right, is like, you know, um, you know, you're doing, you're still doing a great job for the patient, you're still delivering quality care, you know, so is axial length absolutely necessary? Uh, Jonathan, um, I know, we, I know you measure for axial length, we've discussed it on my show, The Corrected View. Um, are you a must, are you a must have? And, and if not, why not? And do you measure axial length on every single patient? Um, I, I can play the opposite side and say that basically I think that uh, it's becoming a must-have uh, for, for those clinicians that are looking to, to do as much as they possibly um, are able to, given the constraints of our knowledge today. Uh, it, I think it's becoming a must-have for those, those clinicians. Um, you know, it, it, kind of to what you said, Matt, I mean, you have to look at what you're trying to achieve you know, uh, if you're if you're trying to achieve your idea of perfection, you have to you have to reference what the patient's idea of perfection and myopia control is. Uh, potentially going through a myopia control program and keeping a patient under five diopters of myopia um, or six diopters, depending on what you consider to be high myopia. If you can if you can effectively keep the refractive error underneath of that, and the patient uh, once they hit 18 or 19 years old, they're able to pursue refractive surgeries from the parents' win or from the parent's perspective, that's probably a really big win, you know, and, and you're achieving a, a really big goal right there. And, and they're not going to have nearly as many lifelong limitations. Uh, but, but from the clinician side, you know, if, if you're the type A perfectionist, you, you want the tightest myopia control you can imagine. Uh, we know, uh, as Catherine said, the, the noise in the refractive portion, I like that, that, 
that terminology the noise there's just so many confounding pieces to that um, on our side as clinicians we always like objective and repeatability right and so uh, having axial length measurements basically give us what we're craving so I think you know it, you could make an argument for both sides but I think uh, I'm gonna say it's it's beginning or it's starting to become a must-have um, if you if you have that mentality and yeah. Yeah. It's like 10 years ago, you could do ortho okay without a topographer, right? And people kind of would look at you a little bit and be like, hmm, that must be hard, but right, you could do it. Or you could fit keratoconus for sure without a topographer in the beginning, right? We did it for decades. Now it is, I agree, becoming more common. And I think as we get more devices, I think the ultimate hurdle um, where we'll swing a lot of practitioners is when it's billable. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, I think that might still be a ways away. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the standpoint of the AAOMC is that a topographer is absolutely essential, no question. Uh, and it makes me wonder, you know, is axial length going to be the future standard of care? And what is it going to take to get there? Um, is, it, is it just the fact that the equipment is really expensive or there's limited access to it? Jonathan, what do you think? I, I, my personal belief is that it is uh, slowly becoming the standard of care. Um, you know that that debate is happening. I think internally for a lot of providers, uh, whether or not they should should measure and and offer it. I think the adaptation is going to be slow because of the phasing out of older equipment. You know, convincing people that this new piece of equipment is important. And as Catherine said, right now it's not billable, um, and that's an interesting point in itself. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know a lot of practitioners that uh, that want myopia control programs to be billable uh, because I think they enjoy the fact that uh, that there is a financial side to it that can be helpful for the practice uh, and you're offering the patient the right opportunities. I mean, it's when it's not covered by insurance, typically you can set your fees that you see um, you're due for, for all the time and expertise that you have. Well, um, I get all the kids who can't afford it, so I do want it to be billable. <laughs> That's, you know that's the joy of working in an academic center. I get all those kids who can't pay you at your at your uh, practice. I've straddled both sides of it. I really. Um, I'm just teasing it. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's an interesting concept because you know, oftentimes parents will ask about you know billing. I, I have those type A parents that that do get into those details of you know how is this visit being billed? Is it medical or is it vision? Uh, and so I think having the billable opportunity, at least for testing, at least for uh, follow-up evaluations could be super important yeah. uh, in an adaptation and adoption of the uh, biometry measurements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I could go down a brief tangent before we go to the clinical corner, it, it makes me wonder you know, why myopia management ortho K hasn't been more widely adopted by uh, ECPs. And I'm wondering if, you know, if it can be billed to insurance, would that change the paradigm? Would more docs be doing it? Um, Catherine, what do you think? Would that, do you think, do you see that as a possibility or should it uh, remain the domain of, of uh, unbillable? Yeah. I don't know if I have a definitive answer. I will say there will probably always be some doctors who will choose if there's a good glasses option or a good, you know, daily disposable lens that I can slap on your eye that will always be their go-to. It's just going to be come down to 
chair time and not maybe wanting to learn a new new skills. But then there's this other cohort of doctors, and I'm one of them, who really loves the challenge and loves that that patient is really now connected to you as a practice builder. And they refer their friends and their family members and everybody. We don't do, right? We don't have any money for advertising. So it's all word of mouth. And, you know, we're booked, booked out a month or so. So um, would it get more people if it's covered by a vision insurance or a medical insurance? Um, yeah, because there are some people who can't, in our practice, afford myopia management, and we would get more of them. Um, that's, don't get me started on that whole issue. <laughs> All right, Jonathan, uh, final thoughts before we go to the clinical corner. Do you agree with what Catherine said, or do we have anything else to say about axial length? Uh, I I think uh, the billable topic is a really big one. I, but uh, but ultimately, I think the the adaptation of the the acceptance of the medical field uh, in recognizing progressive myopia would be a really big win for everyone, uh, doctors and patients alike. So uh, that part about it excites me definitely, and I think it would it would help the barrier to entry uh, for orthokeratology um, and myopia control. But uh, going back to also the, the initial question is, I think one of the biggest barriers to entry is just the sheer number of options when it comes to orthokeratology lenses and fitting methods and, and uh, measurements of efficacy. There's just, it's, there's a lot of information there to digest and it's, it's very overwhelming and confusing and it's, it's very easy to feel defeat in the beginning. Um, and so to, to have uh, have someone embrace it like an insurance might might make all of that just a little bit easier because it would give uh, potentially some people motivation. All right. I feel like we could do a whole episode uh, you know, <laughs> on that topic. Uh, all right. I think so. so. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So we're going to head over to the clinical corner in, in just a second. And so what I'd like to do is, um, you know, how do you get parents to convert? You know, I'm, uh, you know, I mentioned it to, you know, there's a lot of parents that have yet to do, I have a question from, I'm sorry, I should preface. This is a question from the chat. How do you get parents to convert? I mentioned it to a lot of parents and have yet to have more than one patient proceed. Do I really need to scare them? Is it like when I say I charge X amount, I may as well say they'll need a new mortgage. Do you, what do you guys think? Um, I can get us started. Um, I have the luxury, I will say, of being a myopia. I, I oversee a myopia management clinic. So people are coming to me already decided. Um, but when I've practiced outside of here or talked to other parents, I, I don't think scare tactics are it. I think um, educating them about it and then maybe checking on them in another six months, giving them resources for them to look at. And there's a lot of good ones now available from Kipper Vision and other companies about what myopia is and why it matters. That will make a better connection for you to your patients in the long term than trying to make sure that they, you know, commit to treatment on that day, right? They're going to see their child progress and, and come back to you. Jonathan, what do you think? Well, um, if you have the opportunity to see patients, the same patients year after year, as we said earlier, um, planting the seed of discussion in them early, uh, potentially before the child is nearsighted, or just if you're observing low levels of myopia progression, um, I, I think that is one of the, the ways you have to build a foundation of understanding and, and the, basically the shift in mentality. Um, scare is not the right word, in my opinion, but you do want to 
you want them to understand from the from the healthcare provider that you are at that moment uh, why you have concern, uh, why why your concerns are there, and why why those concerns weren't there, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when the parents were rapidly progressing. Uh, you know, getting the parents to understand that refractive procedures like surgical procedures like LASIK and PRK um, don't fix the concerns that you have about the the ocular health uh, down the road. I mean, there's a lot of pieces to it, but I think getting the parents to understand why we look at myopia differently now than we, we did how many years back. Uh, to me, that's always been really successful in just talking and opening the discussion points. All right. And with that, I think we're going to head to our clinical corner. And because uh, I saw Dr. Leah Johnson, uh, there she is. All right. So Dr. Leah Johnson is the Director of Professional Affairs for Cooper Vision Specialty Eye Care Americas. She is responsible for the development and implementation of clinical and educational programs supporting current and future. Whoa. <laughs> now we're sharing our screen. And I lost my show notes. All right. To continue. Uh, let's see, clinical and educational programs supporting current and future eye care practitioners across the Americas and China. And her guest is Dr. Maria Liu, who is a world-renowned clinical researcher in the field of myopia. She's an associate professor at UC Berkeley School of Optometry and the founder of the Myopia Control Clinic of UC Berkeley Eye Center. Leah, I'm going to hand it over to you. Welcome to the program and take it away. Hi, Matt. Thank you. And sorry for um, sharing my screen, but yes. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Leah Johnson, and I'm excited to share with you today on our clinical corner um, to discuss some uh, concepts to think about for axial length. And we have Dr. Maria Liu um, to share with you on some of these, um, just a brief teaser, because we will be announcing that we have another follow-up webinar to really fully discuss axial length. So with that, our first poll question that we have is axial length is a key measure of the antimyopia efficacy of ortho-K treatment. And any axial length increase means that there's progression of myopia. So is this true or false? Um, it would be great if everyone can just, you know, give it their best guess or best educated guess, whatever you think, true or false. Okay, so what percentage do we have of our, we have, oh wow, this is very interesting. We have about 57% of the response says that this is true, that any axial, the axial length is a key, the key measure and any axial length increase means there is a progression of myopia. And 43% say that this is false. Um, so with that, I'm gonna ask Dr. Liu, what can you share with our audience today on you know, some, some background information on this poll question? Thanks, Leah. Hi, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be in this clinical corner and hopefully this serve as a nice teaser for our next webinar. And so uh, this is a question that's going to lead into our detailed discussion about physiological ocular growth. 
And while we know axial length measurement is getting easier and easier and less invasive, we can start to measuring axial length even to a three to four years old. But the interpretation of the reading is actually not as straightforward as we assumed. So we know axial length has two components. One is related to a physiological or age-related growth. The other is related to a visually induced expansion. So at the next uh, webinar, we're gonna explain how we look at axial length in general and uh, how to take age as an important factor to understand axial length elongation over time. Back to you, Leah. And great. you're on mute. So, yes, so great. That will take us now to our next poll question that we have. Um, poll number two, the anti-myopia efficacies among various clinical trials are very comparable. And so the relative change of axial length is the best outcome. How does everyone feel about true or false? All right, so here we have that 83% say that this is true, that you know anti-myopia efficacies are very comparable and the relative change of axial length is the best outcome. 17% um, say this is false. So Dr. Liu, can you share your insight on this poll question? Yes, so we know there has been some argument of what is considered as the best primary outcome measure in terms of understanding the anti-myopia efficacy in a clinical trial setting. Um, most people prefer to use axial length data instead of refractive data for the comparison across the trials. The argument is that axial length is a more direct indicator of the risk of complications. However, um, again, in the next webinar, we're going to explain why axial length, whether it's the absolute change or it's the percentage relative change, they may not be fully comparable across the um, different clinical trials, mostly depending on the cohort, the age of the cohort in the clinical trial, as well as the baseline level of myopia. And we know that if um, for a 0.3 millimeter increase in axial length in a four years old may be completely physiological that has no refractive shift in their prescription, while a 0.3 millimeter change in a minus eight of 40 years old is totally different things. So again, in the next webinar, we're gonna use, um, we're gonna take some detailed discussion in understanding why the um, relative or the absolute change of axial length as an anti-myopia efficacy outcome may not be completely comparable across the trials. Back to you, Leah. All right, so our last poll question, whoops, here is poll number three. So now as an ECP and an eye care practitioner, as a clinician, you have two patients in your chair, um, a three diopter myope with an axial length of 24 millimeters or an imitrope with an axial length of 25 millimeters. Which patient do you believe has a higher risk of myopia complications?
Um, we'll give it a few more seconds here as everyone's answering. And once again, it looks like we're pretty split on, you know, 41% say that a three diopter myope with an ax with a shorter axial length, right, of 24 millimeters versus 59% say that the imitrope with an axial length of 25 millimeters has a higher risk of myopia complications. So with that, Dr. Liu, would you also please share um, some of your insights on who you're more worried about for higher risk of myopia complications? Looks like we have designed the poll questions to be very good because we can see this is pretty even split. And uh, we are pretty familiar that uh, many doctors like to use any random measure or the absolute value of the axial length as a predictor of retinal complications. And uh, this may not be the case because we know the um, axial length, even though it's statistically significantly associated with the uh, refractive error, but the association is nowhere near the power to actually predict on the individual level. And instead, it should be the change of axial length and its association with the change of refraction that has a much better association and more predictive value. But even that, um, we are gonna use the next webinar to explain why um, monitoring the longitudinal change of axial length of each individual patient is a lot more valuable than comparing the axial length reading across population. Back to you, Leah. All right, so with that, I just wanna share that those were some poll questions to get you thinking about our next webinar that's coming up. It's gonna be happening in about two weeks. Um, it's Myopia Management 101, the importance of axial length. It's co-sponsored by Cooper Vision Specialty Eye Care and TopCon. And we will have the very knowledgeable Dr. Liu to share her insight on on axial link. And so with that, you can use your phone to scan this QR code to sign up for this webinar. And so I'll give you just a moment to scan the QR code with your uh, the camera on your phones, take you to sign, sign up October 27th at 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time or 8 p.m. East Coast Time. So Dr. Liu, thank you so much for joining us for this short clinical corner. And next, I want to also share another webinar that we will be having on October 20th. So just next week and building your myopia management practice. And this is going to be with Dr. Uh, Matthew Martin, and he's going to talk about how to get patients in your chair and how to talk to parents. So you can also sign up for this webinar on October 20th. You can also go to our website for GP specialist orthokportfolio.com, and you can see all of the webinars that we are hosting in the next few weeks to sign up. And then with that, I want to introduce another special guest that we have. Um, Mark Cosgrove, he is the general manager uh, for GP specialist, which is a part of Cooper Vision Specialty Eye Care. And Mark is responsible for managing sales, marketing, manufacturing, R&D, consultation, and operations for GP specialist. He's been so instrumental in expanding the footprint of GP specialists getting approvals in Asia, including China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, Vietnam and establish GP specialist um, as a world leader. And so with that, I want to invite Mark to join us. And Mark, I want to ask you to tell us about the IC lens and what makes it unique in terms of myopia management. 
Well, Leah, thank you so much for that introduction. Wow, that was really nice. Um, so the IC lens, it's a fully customizable Ortho-K lens. It's our in-house design that we've used for close to 20 years. It's a really good lens for your harder to fit patients, patients with higher degrees of myopia, with flatter Ks or with astigmatism, do really well with the IC design because we can customize each individual curve for each individual patient's needs. Awesome. And so, um, you know, the IC lens has this proprietary, as we can see here, um, featuring the MM1 system, um, which creates this custom retinal defocus profile, which we know from clinical studies is one of the core principles of managing myopia. So can you tell me more about this MM1 design? Yeah. Um, so the MM1 system was developed to increase the chances of myopia management in ortho-K patients. Um, as designers and, and consultants, we have learned through years of making custom OK lenses that certain characteristics of a lens can increase the chances of myopia management and peripheral retinal defocus. Um, so we've taken that experience and developed a system to maximize peripheral defocus without causing other issues such as induced astigmatism, lens decentration, things of that nature. Uh, this MMO system gives you the opportunity to maximize the myopia management you provide for your patient. Um, this is just another example of how the IC lens is a truly customizable design. Great. So we have one question here. Why is it called the MM1? Do you want to take that one or you want me to? You can take that one, uh, Leah. I mean, well, you were there. <laughs> I, I was there for the naming. So we wanted practitioners to have a way to really customize and take control of these different parameters that are going to give, you know, and, and for full customizability. MM1 stands for the Myopia Management 1. It's the first design that we have here. And so you can tailor this and change some of the typically proprietary curves um, from other ortho-K lens designs. And now you have the control to change these based on, you know, the how you're trying to manage this patient's myopia. Anything else you want to add to that, Mark? You did excellent. Yeah, um, we developed a system. Uh, a lot of it was because we have some proprietary curves that we don't give out to doctors, but it's something that we, we change. And I talk with doctors a lot about, hey, let's change this and change that to create more peripheral defocus. Um, what we did now was develop a system to make it uh, easier for the doctor to place those orders and understand what we're doing. Sounds great. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining our webinar. We hope that you learned different um, aspects on axial length, on um, outdoor time, on genetics, and, and just everything, right? And treatment zone, and, um, you know, that there's a lot of new concepts brought up to this, you know, the knowns and unknowns. We don't know everything about myopia. So we like to have a webinar and podcast to discuss, you know, what we know and what we don't know. And back right. to you, Matt. All right. Thank you, Leah. Well, that's it for this episode of the knowns and unknowns of myopia management and other cool stuff in optometry. Be sure to join us for our November episode, what's really needed and what does it cost to run a myopia management practice? And if you like what we're doing with this series, please make sure 
to make your way to aaomc.org and consider becoming a member of the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control. Our standard members give their actual real life money to keep this mission alive and to produce content like this. I'd also like to thank Drs. Richdale, Sconer, Lou, and Johnson, and of course, Mark Cosgrove. And I'd also like to thank GP specialists for making this program possible, as well as Contamac for their support of this program, and also Tangible Sciences. Tangible Sciences is dedicated to dramatically improving the contact lens experience for patients and eye care professionals. And for all of our listeners and viewers around the world, thank you for your attention, and we will see you at the next one.